Thanks for joining us this week, and welcome to Mutuality Matters, a weekly podcast hosted by CBE International, where our mission is to promote the biblical message that God calls women and men of all cultures, races, and classes to share authority equally in service and leadership in the home, church, and work. Let's get into this week's episode. Welcome. My name is Aaron Moniz, and I am here with my co-host, Blake Dean, and you are listening to New Voices of Mutuality Matters, hosted by CBE International. And friends, we are excited today to host author, podcaster, and speaker, Tiffany Bloom. Now, you should know about Tiffany because she is the author of Pray Tell, Why We Silence Women Who Tell the Truth and How Everyone can speak up. She is a sought-after speaker, writer, and podcast co-host of the popular podcast, Why Though?, a show answering the existential and nonsensical questions we ask ourselves with author and speaker Ashley Abercrombie. She speaks at conferences and events, and her work has been featured in World Vision Magazine, Publishers Weekly, Sojourners, Red Letter Christians, and the YouVersion Bible app, The Jenny McCarthy Show, and more. As minority immigrant woman with an interracial family, she is passionate about women's equality, justice, and dignity. And we are so excited to have her here today. Tiffany, welcome to Mutuality Matters. Uh, Hey, hey. So glad to be here. Wonderful. Well, as our listeners know, we always start with watch, read, or listen. So I'm going to pitch it over to Blake. Blake Dean, what are you watching, reading, or listening to? Yeah, my eyebrows are sweating a little bit because I forgot to think about this before we got here. So mm. I, well, the not cop-out answer is I actually was listening to Why Though this week in oh, preparation. stop it. I'm oh, literally, see, I'm not too good. Too good. Not <laughs> buttering up the guests. But the real answer is I've been listening to Christmas music, which I know this will release later than we're recording it, but it is kind of inappropriate to be listening to Christmas music, but you know what? Get off me, Aaron. <laughs> I'm, I know I'm, I'm giving you the judging face. Podcasters can't see the judging face, but we're, we're not in Christmas season yet friends. And so that, that confession, well, it's okay. We'll do some reconciliation work later, Blake Dean, and, and that'll be fine. Um, what about you? Okay. Are yes. we thinking like NSYNC Christmas? Are we thinking no, like... No, it's particularly Kelly Clarkson's it's Kelly new Clarkson. Christmas oh record. Gosh, it's so highly specific. Kelly Clarkson. I love Kelly Clarkson. She's lovable. I agree with you, Tiffany. She's very lovable. And yes. she's so normal. She's so normal and with an abnormal voice. So her new Christmas record yeah. is so good. Yes. To know Blake Dean is to know that he loves Kelly Clarkson. That's true. Deeply. Oh, I love it. With a passion. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I, I am not listening to Christmas music. I would like to go ahead and preface <laughs> by saying that. Um, I will say that I've recently been rewatching... Um, the marvelous Miss Maisel, which it's mm. it's a show that's it's it's a little bit it's not it's not kid friendly it's it's definitely a little racy but um, it, I do love period pieces that really capture a time and a place really well and it's very very funny so um, just went back and was rewatching those just for nostalgia so that's that's something I was watching um, and Tiffany what are you watching reading or listening to these days Okay I know this is like the majority. So I understand that I'm just like going with the flow because you had very specific individual, highly personal answers. So here I go, but Ted Lasso, I'm rewatching oh, season same. two. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> rewatching season two. And I love, I watched season one three times. I loved it because it's the world's so a dumpster fire people. And we all need something to smile about. So here I am laughing at Roy Kent, the way he holds the straight. If y'all watch season two again, Watch it again Ugh. and don't watch the Christmas episode or Beard After Dark, and it's perfect. It's flawless. I hated it's as good as Beard as well. After Dark. 
So word on the street, which you might already know this, Blake Dean, is that they got a 10 episode order and then Apple's like, holy moly, everyone loves this. Make us 12 episodes. And they're like, uh, we already wrote the story arc for the entire 10 series. So then they had to 10 episodes. So they had to just throw in. That's mm. why the Christmas one is so odd yeah, it's and it doesn't move the storyline forward. And same with Beard After Dark. So they had to like fill in, but they'd already mapped out the entire season. So it, mm. when you watch it without those, it's makes sense so you good. get it it's it makes better sense yeah. oh that is so it. i'm so glad you said that because that explanation really helps that really does it does i kind of have a little more like all right all right jason stakis you can have okay <laughs> all right i know it's been so good it's been so good well friends we are we are so excited um to be talking uh with tiffany about her book pray tell and and she's already been speaking and and putting out content related to these topics. But as you know, a lot of what we have been working to address um, honestly and intentionally is uh, the subject of power dynamics, um, especially in our faith context and how they affect the way we understand gender and are flourishing as, as image bearers of the Lord in these, in these contexts. So, um, so Tiffany, this book contains parts of your story um, plus an impressive collection of research. I'm, I'm a data person, so I really appreciated all that. Um, and I would love to hear what it was like for you to research and write this book and how it affected you personally um, and, and what resulted just in your faith journey. Can you tell us about that? Absolutely. Um, the StrengthsFinder 2.0 learner is one of my top three gifts. So I love to learn and research is my heart's cry. So I think, mm-hmm. to be honest, the five months of research before I even wrote the book was the most robust, eye-opening part of this. Because like the majority of women who walked the earth, I lived an imbalance of power in my everyday existence, yet I didn't have the vernacular to describe it. So being able to research it and see how this happens, why this happens, and how we can prevent it was glorious. It was incredible. Yeah. And I loved bringing in um, both sacred and secular stories that we could we yeah. could all identify with in modern history. I really, obviously we have biblical examples, but I hone in from the 1920s to present day, that last hundred years, because that's where, especially in the Western world, we see things start to heat up and women find their agency and, and autonomy and find their voice and understand that they don't have to live in a world where they don't matter. They can have dignity and equality and mutuality in a way that isn't some sort of like feminist manifesto men need to die. It's like, actually, we're just going for equality here. That's like yeah. permission to play. Amen. That's all Bare we're asking minimum. for. Bare yeah. minimum here. Um, and I'm very fascinated by how that played out and how we demonize women in the process. So mm-hmm. as somebody who lived through this, I um, witnessed abusive power at a woman's expense in my context where I worked and where I, uh, where I was, and it was just earth shattering. It was earth shattering. And I knew I wasn't alone. So being able to unearth why we silence women and how we can all be part of the answer, because the truth is we are all propelling in one way or another patriarchal culture, whether we're uh, conscious or or not. So being able to really, um, do the digging and then synthesize it in a way that we can all take action was my desire. Yeah. And I think you did that so well. And yeah. so if I can use this word whimsically, not in a mm. way that made it feel, um, uh, light, but in a way that made it feel, um, engageable. <laughs> it, it didn't, I didn't, you did, I didn't feel reading it that I was, um, overwhelmed as I was reading it, but the perfect amount of weight down by the um, gravity. And so I think you did that so well. I'd love to kind of drill down on your comment, even about propelling patriarchal um, 
power dynamics forward consciously or unconsciously, especially for, I mean, me, but also um, our other male um, listeners, you talk about um, allyship and you spend a whole chapter talking about allyship, but something that was so um, stark to me was um, your, and I've never heard this phrase before. So I'd love to know if you coined it or if it came from somewhere else, but um, kind of false egalitarianism or a uh, faux egalitarianism um, and how good men can be complicit in abuse and even like speak to women's equality and champion women with air quotes. And yet um, when it gets to certain points um, leading it, that can, ca- that can be another way of silencing women um, in microaggressions or um, obviously bigger abuses. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that concept of faux egalitarianism, of false egalitarianism, um, and kind of maybe some advice for how to how to check that. Absolutely. To my knowledge, no one else has coined that. Hey, that is um, the, the sentence yeah. I wrote after describing my own experience in a very publicly egalitarian space was I lived faux egalitarianism at its finest. And I was so pleased with myself when I wrote that sentence. (laughs) And I was like, I was, and I was like, wow, this is, you know, especially watching everything happening with the SBC. Many of us are watching this play out on Twitter or, or, or in articles and all these things. But what about all of us who grew up in an egalitarian spaces and we still bear the scars Mm, of patriarchy and we still walk around and we have good men, as you said, Blake Dean, good men, who do don't realize that they're that that they're perpetuating this. So uh, to back it up, how this happens is men, specifically men, research mm-hmm. shows as they advance in places of power, they often shed the virtues that got them there in the first place, mm. be it kindness or generosity or reciprocity, all of these things that perhaps landed them in a place of power. But as they have an ascent to power, research shows they are less empathetic. Mm. They're more agenda-driven to their own way. You see those narcissistic tendencies. I'm not saying DSM, they are narcissistic, but you see the tendencies start to play out. And so the men and women, but specifically the women around them, become these subservient Mm -hmm. beings who are their supply is the word that we would use here. They are there to meet the needs of the men in power. And so this is predictable and this is preventable. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if we want men to be able to see their power, we first have to ask them to take stock yeah. of their privilege, of their place, of their platform. Mm. Look what you have. Look where you're at. How did you get there? Yeah. And if we want to solve that, I know I'm really I'm compacting this. We have to ask them, how can you leverage your platform, yeah. your privilege, your place in a way that lifts another woman up. And the example I give um, in the book is David and Bathsheba. Mm -hmm. And look at Nathan. He is an ally. He's this modern day ally. He's the whistleblower. That that would be the title in a modern day. In fact, many scholars look at the story of David and Bathsheba and they compare it to workplace sexual assault. Mm -hmm. That is the closest comparison in our modern day. Because Mm -hmm. the truth is, it was known what David had done. Think about how many complicit enablers were present for him to be able to summon a woman against her will, have his way with her. And then somebody who knew what was going on and realizing nobody else was standing up comes to him and said, I know what you did Mm -hmm. and you need to repent. And we'd love to think as we've extended a hand of forgiveness to many in power Mm -hmm. is that, Oh, you know what? The Lord restored him. 
man after God's own heart. And in reality, David was never, never, never in the place of power he was before that. There were lifelong consequences that he dealt with. Mm. So as we think about in our day, before anything hits the fan, there before anything hits the fan, men specifically Mm. and women can promptly apply bystander intervention. Bystander intervention is just three simple ways. You see something, you intervene, and then you follow up. It's so simple. In fact, this bystander intervention is so effective. It's been employed in every branch of the military and in most academic institutions in America. Mm. Truly before, again, you see Rosie's uncomfortable with Doug, whether Doug's at a frat party or he's the usher at church, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. So you see something and you're like, Hmm. And you intervene. You say, Hey, Rosie, did you want to go grab a coffee? Hey, you're not confronting. There's no confrontation necessary. Any of this, by the way, at this point, intervene, say something. You and Rosie walk to the car. Oh, I have something to show you. I don't care. Make Mm something. And then the follow-up of like, Hey, I might be totally off Rosie, but did you see him uncomfortable? Because often as women we're taught to be nice at the expense of being kind Mm. that we are so worried about how we might come off or be mm-hmm. seen as uh, irreverent or, or bossy or what have you, that we're willing to squelch or quell any of our uh, feelings of, yeah. of creep. You know, we're just feeling creeped yeah. out by Doug. Yeah. But when somebody else speaks it out, we're like, yes, I did feel that way. Yeah. That affirmation, hearing it from somebody else um, and then walking it out and saying, hey, Rosie, if you need to, if we need to go talk to somebody or report this, you know, I'm here. I'm here. Yeah. You don't have to do this alone. I am so, um, I'm so grateful for that section in your book, for the ways that you explore that, but also for you just breaking that down for us right here. I think, because I think the more that, the more that Aaron and I kind of talk to people and the more that we like think and talk even off mic about abuses of power, the more and more aware I am of how easy it is, even as, and egalitarian man, even as hopefully an ally, someone who's trying to um, leverage his position and his platform and his place. Um, But that ascent to power, that ascent of whatever kind of power that is, right. Whether it's institutional or social or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And, but I also, and I wonder if you could speak really briefly this, because I'd love to get to other aspects of your book, but um, I have a phrase that I use for some of these, um, some of these men and it's, we don't clap for fish that swim. And um, so I feel like sometimes, and I've experienced this as a, um, as a, as an egalitarian male is like, I get praised for things that are just like base level decency or like, (laughs) yes, I think women have thoughts and voices of their own. And it's like, I turned water into wine. Pedestal effect. Yeah. That's the, that's the totally pedestal effect. And so, um, and so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about kind of that idea in like the abuses of power and the unchecknedness of power, especially with men who kind of hold egalitarian values intellectually. Um, and I love the way you explored this, I think in the first chapter of your book. Yeah. When we meet somebody and, and especially whether it's egalitarian or complementarian, yeah. the same principle is at work here. Mm-hmm. So when we see somebody and they say, this is who I am, and this is what I stand for. 80% of us will not be able to switch from our 
first point of view, our first impression, first impressions are very hard to break. Mm-hmm. And so we will apply what's called the halo effect. And mm-hmm. we will say, no, this is who he is. This is who he told me he is. And if it's in a religious concept context, and we've had a transcendent experience mm-hmm. at this person's invitation, it is cemented into our psyche and in our soul in such a way that's even more rock solid mm-hmm. and hard to adjust. So if this person says with his mouth, or we've seen evidence and we have been benefactors mm-hmm. of his goodness or kindness or egalitarian way, then how on earth, how mm-hmm. on earth could we ever believe that something bad could happen even more? So that goes down a little, little bit deeper. If we really pull back the layers yeah. here and you have this just world hypothesis at play, which means mm-hmm. the world is just, everybody's getting what they deserve. Therefore, mm-hmm. if this person did do this, this, this one, woman did something to deserve it mm-hmm. because this mm-hmm. man would never do something. It couldn't mm-hmm. possibly be true. So if it did happen, then she deserved it because if it, she didn't, then it could happen to me. And that we, yeah. that scrambles everything. And we would rather pin uh, abusive power on a woman yeah. because if we don't have, to, if we, if we don't do that, then we have to pull back the entire system and excavate yeah. what's right, what's wrong and how we can change it. And we don't want to do that. It's way too much work mm. mentally financially. Totally. Yeah. Thank you. Oh yeah. No. And one of the things just, just to, to mention this here that I I think is valuable about your book in addition to, to all the stuff we're talking about is how you bring us these terms and define them and break them down. I think for people who will read this book, I just want to point out that what you give us are these, these wonderful articulations where people say, Oh, that's what that is. I've experienced that, yeah. or I've seen that, or I did yeah. not know that's what it was. Okay. Now I, now I can name it. Now I can. In a can way that's so accessible it. too. Yes. That doesn't yes. feel over your head. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Aaron, that's been the, the biggest feedback I've gotten from so, you know, emails weekly from women <laughs> of like, Oh, I didn't have verbiage to describe my experience until yeah. I was able to see it in print and be like, Oh, that was happening. I knew something was off and I couldn't put my finger on it because when we voice it again, we're gaslit, we're manipulated, (laughs) we're coerced into believing a false version of events. Yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. I I really appreciate that. And, and one thing I would, I would like to segue to here is just another aspect of your book that, that we definitely want to, to address. We feel this is so important, which is the intersection of race and gender, um, in your book. And and I I appreciate so much, um, just, just the layers and historical context that you put in the book, um, about how, um, women of color are often, silenced and abused even even by uh white feminists and mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. just if, if we're gonna if we're gonna talk about you know faux egalitarian men and and and, and like let's let's really get honest let's really get honest about yeah. how some of these things have 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 played out even um from white women to to women of color um and could you just talk a little bit about this because it's, it's so it's so great in the book but i would love for our listeners to to hear a little bit about how that is another layer we have to recognize when it comes to the silencing of women and and abuses of power. Absolutely. Well, as we know, race is a social construct and we love to order each other. We love to put our place in a, in a higher, in a higher place in the ladder. But interestingly, you know, you look in the 1920s during the first women's movement and black women weren't allowed to march with white women. They were sent to the back of the line because white women inherently believed that their battle was different. In reality, they couldn't see the intersection of their race and their gender, as you said, 
And then you fast forward to the second woman's movement and white women wanted what their husbands had. They wanted what Mm. their dads had. And so what did that mean? That meant that women of color were going to clean their house and watch their kids and fill in all the work so they could go work in an office. And so they could go be and do and live their big life. Right. So now you fast forward to now and you can't escape the, the white feminist. I hope I don't offend anybody listeners. I love you all. We're all here to learn. (laughs) No. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's be honest together. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You can't escape how inherent this is in this system that white women who have power often still model what men in power have. And Mm. they, and if we wanted to have what men had, we'd have to be really oppressive people, Mm -hmm. really oppressive people. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, and so if we want to see how this plays out, we have to believe that race and gender physical size that's often unmentioned physical size Mm. plays big into uh, understanding balances of power physical size obviously class reputation platform how all of these play together Mm. to make up a human because we're so quick to dismiss a woman of color's experience based on our own assumptions and biases Uh, for example i list in the book how a former slave girl wanted to sue. This is like late 1800s. Oh, I love wanted this. to sue mm-hmm. so great. her, her slave owner because she was taken advantage of in a barn and her younger siblings witnessed the act. And the, and the judge said, unless you can prove that you didn't enjoy it, you have no case here. And sadly that same rhetoric has seeped its way into universities, into mm. HR policies that you have to prove that some way, somehow that you didn't invite misconduct. Mm. So the onus has always been on women, specifically women of color, women mm-hmm. of a lower class to escape abusive power rather than mm-hmm. men to behave justly. Mm. Yes. And in getting that history and the, the, the anecdotes that go along with the court cases that you yeah. share in the book, I, there was a lot of these that were, that were brand new to me, yeah. things that I had not encountered yet. And I, I so appreciate that again, that research that you did um, because again, feeling the the burden of proof being placed mm. on the woman for, for such a long time and seeing that historically mapped out so precisely in, in the way you, you write this out, um, for, for our listeners, I just, I just want to articulate this because yeah. if you've been thinking if these are the things that have been mulling over in your head, you need to get this book and you need to read these because it does help yeah. paint that historic picture. Those you go, Oh, yeah. that's what's been wrong at the heart of how we've been dealing with abuse um, all this time. So, so just again, articulating mm. that and, and, and being just very thankful that, uh, that you did this beautiful research because I feel like yeah. I learned so much from your book. I completely agree. Oh, thank you. I completely agree. I, I love that in nearly every chapter of your book too, you are kind of, tracing and recognizing the timeline of the movement to both recognize that abuse is happening and then what to do about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And one example, I'll just quote straight from quote, uh, the toxic combination of narcissism, sexism, and discrimination within systems predates first and second wave women's movements. The term sexual harassment didn't even exist until the late seventies, despite decades long denigration of working women. Will you share with our listeners from your research and your expertise why these important conversations about power dynamics and loopholes of due process seem only to be catching up, you mentioned earlier, in like the last 20 years? Um, And what are some variables that have slowed the progress to successfully do this for generations? 
We've been late to the party because women haven't been at the top. Women have not been at decision-making tables, mm. which is why yeah. the more women are at decision-making tables, you see safer cities are designed, uh, safer mm-hmm. laws are passed for women, children, and men. Uh, yeah. Less riskier decisions are made that affect all in whatever company, system, church you have. Yeah. Because they haven't been in places of power, they have not been able to steer the ship to address these earlier. And mm. HR policies are notoriously behind because it is expensive to fix mm. this problem. Problem. But what we have is in this day and age, social media. And mm. when you mentioned the last 20 years, you're talking about the advent of the internet. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So when you think of the internet to now, we now have a way to share. It's been democratized, if you will. There's been a way to share your pains and your burden, a public lament in a way that you mm. haven't been before. In fact, the Me Too movement started on Twitter. Yeah. It started on Twitter. It started on a social media app and it has now, but, but know that even now we're barely hitting some legislation that would protect women in their workplaces, yeah. in their faith communities out of the Me Too movement. So here we are in this post Me Too movement and we are still fighting for recognition and for a voice, but you know, Rome wasn't built in the day. It was built brick by brick. So <laughs> one day at a time. Yes. Oh, that's, that's wonderful. Um, something that, that I was really reflecting on uh, when reading your book is, uh, just the whole chapter that you dedicate to why it is important for women to be believed. And, and while this is, is something that I guess should be more common sense, should be more accessible, shouldn't, shouldn't be something that we have to, to dig into. I really appreciate that you did in, in the chapter because, um, because this is still hard. This is still hard for so many people. And, um, I was just wondering if you can just for our listeners summarize this important thesis of your book and why it is important for women to be believed. Yeah. I first want to say it's, it's a one, two punch, the one punch of abuse of power and the second of not being believed, Mm -hmm. which dare I say, when you're already out of emotional gas in your tank, it is like two to the chest to Mm -hmm. not be believed. And I remember Aaron, when I sat across somebody from the first time, as I shared about an abuse of power that I witnessed and I was the bystander, (laughs) um, and I still lost so much, lost all that I held dear, you know, financially, professionally. It was it was a really uh, traumatic time. And as this woman looked at me and said, "I believe you," something mm-hmm. broke in me wow. because as as women, mischaracterization and being misunderstood, mm-hmm. there what? There's nothing more painful yeah. when mm-hmm. you finally got brave enough to speak up, and somebody diminishes your lived experience. Yeah. You feel small in ways you didn't even know you could. Yeah, that's right. And so this idea of believing women has been <laughs> has been turned at this idea that women are dangerous if they're believed. Mm-hmm. Somehow that makes them dangerous. Somehow that gives them power that they are not due. And mm-hmm. in reality, we're in this mess in the first place is because men were believed and women yeah. weren't believed. Men did abuse their power and men did have too much power and they they done dirty with it. So here we are <laughs> in a place yeah. where we think, oh man, we can't believe women. That's a dangerous thing. That's what it, that's what's been said. It's so dangerous to believe totally. women. And in reality, not only do we need to believe a woman, but I specifically say believe women because there's a narrative in history that has been forgotten, erased, diminished, and it is half the earth. It's Mm -hmm. half the earth from day one. We have been half the earth. And so if we want to believe women first, we're going to honor the inherent dignity as image bearers that they are. And we are going to allow for their liberation and their freedom and their healing. Because when we believe women, we affirm their healing. And that process begins in community. 
Yeah. I, I love that. And yes. I love in your bio, I was thinking this when Aaron was reading it, that it's um, your passion about women's equality, justice, and dignity. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, um, I feel like that is what, at least from a reader and even a male reader that I was so um, moved by in your book is that all of the stories that you told um, were never as simple as what was what was done to someone, but that there was always an inherent dignity to the to the women that you were discussing. Yes. And I think that was um, really, really important. So listeners, I so hope that you will go out and buy, pray, tell why we silence women who tell the truth and how everyone can speak up. Um, and I do hope you will buy it. Yes, um, buy it. If I can just say supporting female authors is so important. Buying it from the publisher is so important mm-hmm. and it helps so much. So please go and buy it. Um, and you can also keep up with Tiffany on Instagram and Twitter at Tiffany Bloom. Um, I, is there anything that we can be looking forward to after this kind of press cycle for this book? Is there anything you're working on or is it just pray tell season for you? Oh man, it's been pray tell season for sure. This all of 2021. And it's been beautiful to see the fruit of people awakening to their own understanding of what it means to build an equitable world because it Mm. takes all of us one by one. And I've had opportunity to take that to corporate spaces, to nonprofit spaces, and really allow people to do their own work, their own heart and homework uh, to understand how they can uh, contribute to a holistic understanding of mutuality. And also for those who are interested, there is a free pray tell Bible study at tiffanybloom.com if you want to wet your feet a little bit. That's great. That's great. Also, and, and I only say this because I was just seeing something on Twitter um, recently that you and I were both uh, talking about when someone was asking about conferences and who they bring to conferences. So if, listeners, <laughs> if you are out there and you are someone who organizes uh, women's yes. conferences and conferences for churches, Tiffany Bloom needs to be on your radar. We're just, we're just going to go ahead and plug that and put that out there because it's important. Um, oh, thank you. Well, uh, friends, thank you for joining us today. Um, go to the show notes, find all the links, buy the book. And uh, if you enjoyed the episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so that you can hear weekly from our co-hosts and other themes as we develop content on gender theology for the gospel empowerment of men and women. And be sure to follow CBE International on Facebook and Twitter. You should also go to their website at cbeinternational.org for even more content. Subscribe to their blog, magazine, and academic journal. Watch videos and listen to audio of past conferences and events. And you should go visit their bookstore where you can find a ton of talented authors and subjects that will enrich your faith and equip you to use your God-given talents and leadership and service to the gospel for all, regardless of gender, ethnicity, or class. We would like to thank Landon, our support tech, and the team at CBE International that made this podcast possible. I am Erin Monas with my co-host Blake Dean. We are Mutuality Matters. Thanks for listening. Looking for more information about CBE and our mission for biblical equality? Then please visit cbeinternational.org for more information. And please be sure to tune in each week for new episodes here or wherever else you listen to podcasts.